Who needs some presents? Boy, I think we all do. The ground has shifted underneath our feet. So today I'm reviewing a really great book, and it's all about helping you settle into this one moment. It's the only moment you have, so let's make it a good one. Let's jump in. What does it mean to love and work well? And how do I pursue what truly matters? Working at the intersection of business and psychology, I help you answer these questions and more so you can focus priorities, inspire change, lead with courage, and live with more joy today. Hi, I'm Dr. Melissa Smith. Welcome to the Pursue What Matters podcast, where we focus on what it takes to thrive in love and work. Boy, it's been a whirlwind of a couple of weeks. Can you believe how the world has changed? So a few weeks ago, life was going about normal. Um, You know, we were getting ready for spring, getting ready for spring break. Maybe some of you were on spring break. And then the world came to a screeching halt. (laughs) At least that's what it's felt like. So most of us are on lockdown. Most of us are homeschooling. I say homeschooling in quotes. Um, (laughs) Some are doing better than others, but we have never needed presence more than ever. The anxiety is so high right now. There's a lot of worry, a lot of worry about our health, a lot of worry about our jobs, worry about the economy. And it's so easy to let anxiety get the best of us. But, you know, the the reality is it's possible to thrive in the face of uncertainty. And we definitely are dealing with a lot of uncertainty right now. These are unprecedented times. We've never had an experience like this in our lifetime. But it is possible to thrive. It is possible to to remain grounded in the midst of the chaos swirling around us. And today I want to talk about a really great book that can help us to stay grounded. So this is a book that is all about the power of mindfulness. Now, you know, if you've listened to the podcast for more than say a minute, then you already know that I'm a big fan of mindfulness. And that's mostly because I totally need it. I am not naturally a calm or relaxed person, but over the years I have found mindfulness to be incredibly helpful to me personally. And I would just say, you know, definitely in the last two weeks with, you know, everything unraveling around us, mindfulness and a meditation practice has been incredibly valuable to me personally. And then also professionally, as I've been talking with leaders and clients in my clinical practice, it's been incredibly helpful. And this book that I'm reviewing In this moment, five steps to transcending stress using mindfulness and neuroscience is really, really great. It's been around for a while. It's simple, it's straightforward, which is exactly what we need right now. And it does such a great job of helping us understand neuroscience so that we can become a friend to ourselves so that stress doesn't undo us. And, you know, we, we've all felt maybe a little unraveled recently, and it's time to pull ourselves together and get some grounding and, you know, 
this book can help us with that. And I think one of the great values of this book is it really helps us to make the connection with neuroscience. And it's not too complicated. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. So let's go ahead and jump in and do a review of this great book in this moment. So the book is all about building skills to help you become more resilient to stress. So this is a practical book. The authors totally acknowledge that while stress is a normal part of life, for many of us, it's become very chronic and we become hyperreactive to it so much so that it begins to take a toll on our mental and physical health. And it is very true that stress is an actually a normal part of our life, right? I mean that that is absolutely true like there's no way to eliminate stress and that would not be functional stress is a natural and normal part of our life but when it becomes chronic that's when we run into trouble with both our mental and our physical health so of course many of us can feel the effects of stress every day Some of the side effects of stress include headaches, lack of energy, nervousness, anger, faster resting heart rate, palpitations, nausea, weight gain, increased or decreased appetite, increased risk of diabetes, need I go on, right? So they're big impact. 85% of adults are experiencing stress regularly, right? So that's just based on a, a, a really simple survey. But women typically report feeling more stressed than men. Maybe that's because women are more connected emotionally than men. I don't know. Or they just experience more stress than men. 77% of people regularly experience physical symptoms caused by stress. And 48% of individuals report that stress has a negative impact on their personal and professional life. So a good way to think about this book is that it's focused on resilience training for your mind so that you can remain balanced despite the challenges life throws at you. Because of course, stress is part of life, but we want you to remain steady and resilient despite that. So let's see what's been said about the book. So from Stephen Hayes, PhD. So he is a leading researcher and the co-founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. He said, chronic stress is a marker of living life on autopilot. This book gently wakes you up. It asks you instead to live life inside non-judgmental awareness and intentionality and to do it right here, right now, in this moment. And from Publishers Weekly, what they said about this book, the proposal that seemingly insignificant everyday stressors rather than life-changing events pose the greatest danger to average person's mental and physical health. Accordingly, the authors emphasize the importance of developing healthy coping mechanisms, advising the reader on how to evaluate one's current state of mind. So to that end, they present a number of exercises with the promise that practice over time, these will teach the brain how to handle stress by getting into a less emotional, more cerebral state where one can process different courses of action, what they call the quiet mind. 
So now let's learn a little bit more about the authors. So Kirk D. Strassel, PhD, he's the co-founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So with uh, Stephen Hayes, a cognitive behavioral approach that has gained widespread adoption in the mental health and substance abuse communities. So Strassel works as a practicing psychologist at Central Washington Family Medicine, a community health center providing health care to medically underserved patients. He also teaches family medicine physicians in how to use the principles of mindfulness and acceptance in general practice. And then Patricia Robinson, PhD, is Director of Training and Program Evaluation at Mountain View Consulting Group, a firm that assists healthcare systems with integrating behavioral health services into primary care settings. So she's the author of Real Behavior Change in Primary Care and co-author of the Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Depression. So after exploring primary care psychology as a researcher, she devoted her attention to dissemination in rural America, urban public health departments, and military medical treatment facilities. So that's a little bit about the authors. And so they are, they're really focused on acceptance and commitment therapy. And that is the approach that they use in this book. And I have spoken before on the podcast about acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. And this is considered cognitive behavioral approach which is, it's a mindfulness-based approach. And it is great. I mean, I use use ACT in my clinical treatment all the time. So for depression, anxiety, all sorts of things, eating issues, everything. And so I, I love ACT and people really seem to resonate with it. And so it's, it's this idea of learning rather than really trying to combat your thoughts or thought stopping, that sort of thing, which we see with um, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. It's really learning to become a curious observer to your thoughts and live to your values, learning to accept your reality. And it's really well-versed in the mindfulness practice of accepting your reality, being present in this moment. And so obviously it is very appropriate as we think about this mindfulness approach. That is what it is all about. What I really like about this book in particular is it's a quick read. It's practical. It gives you just enough of a tie-in to the neuroscience, which can be really helpful, but they don't overly complicate it. And so I think it, it helps mindfulness to make more sense to many of us who kind of are scratching our heads when people start talking about mindfulness. So I like that. I think it's a nice primer on that topic. So the focus of the book is really to explain the relationship between three things. So stress, mindfulness, and neuroscience. And they, their goal is to do that as simply as possible. And I think they do a pretty good job. So one thing that you need to do the authors ask you to do, and I think that this is very true with any mindfulness practice, is they ask you to be persistent. And again, that's a requirement with any mindfulness endeavor. So their message throughout the book is that practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. And this is this concept is so true when it comes to neuroscience. So consistency makes a huge difference, but we often need to be quite persistent in our efforts in order to begin experiencing changes. And you can begin experiencing changes, you know, 
very quickly, but in order for those changes to gain traction, you need to be persistent. You need to be consistent over time. And so they definitely make the case that you need to be persistent with the skills that they teach in the book. And I would absolutely echo that. Okay, so now let's let's look at the main points of the book. Okay, so the book is broken into three main parts. So I'll identify those three parts briefly, and then we'll do a deeper dive into each of them. So the part one is an overview of stress. And then let's see, part two, it, uh, the authors focus on five core aspects of mindfulness. And these chapters are really packed with specific exercises to help you train your brain and rewire your neural pathways because that's the name of the game. That's what it's all about. And then part three is really focused on developing a mindful lifestyle and really includes a comprehensive assessment to help you assess stress and and see what drains your battery and what charges your battery. So, you know, the second part is really looking at like, let's do some skill building. And then part three is let's have a mindful lifestyle and get rid of those things that, you know, those triggers that are amping your stress up. Because, you know, if, if you have all the skills in the world, but you're keeping your stress amped up, like that's kind of silly. Like what can you do to actually, you know, decrease your stress level? And then, you know, obviously you'll still have, you'll still want to use your skills because of course you're still going to have some stress, but we don't want to have a raging fire of stress that you're always going to have to be, you know, using those skills on. So it's really thinking about having that mindful lifestyle and a comprehensive plan. Okay, so let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into part one, which is the overview of stress. So this section helps you assess your own level of stress, introduces the concept of mindfulness, and then how these are related to neuroscience. So Of course, part one really sets the foundation for the rest of the book, but it's all about your specific experience with stress and mindfulness. And so the the argument that the authors make throughout the book is that it's the small stressors that add up that usually do us in. And they have good research to support that rather than the big stressors, like the big life events. So large stressors are definitely very stressful. So when we think about divorce, we think about um, the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. Of course, those are stressful, but you know we often have more support in those times. And at least those stressors are more visible. And so it is somewhat easier to get needs met. But what happens with the small everyday stressors is that we make the mistake and assume that they're no big deal or that we should be able to cope with them. And so what happens is that we are not proactive in addressing them. And that's a really big mistake. And of course, those daily stressors accumulate over time and they take a really big toll. And so when we face daily stressors, one of the most common responses is to avoid or numb in the face of these stressors. So it's a very natural response. We don't like unpleasant experiences, right? Most of us don't. And so our tendency is to avoid or to numb. But of course, this really sets us up for a very unhelpful pattern over time. 
So of course, instead of avoiding or numbing, the solution instead is mindfulness. So that is the whole point of this book. Instead of numbing, we need to move to mindfulness, which is to pay attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. Okay, so that definition of mindfulness comes from John Kabat-Zinn. And he's he's kind of considered the father of mindfulness in America. So he he's out of Harvard and he was one of the very first researchers on mindfulness. So I'm going to repeat that definition. Pay attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So let me kind of unpack that a little bit for you. So when you notice stress, pay attention to it rather than trying to avoid, minimize, or ignore. We want to pay attention to stress in a particular way. So remaining non-judgmental about it and simply accepting the reactions it produces in you. So this is really great because it allows you to think clearly about the actions you might want to take to offset the effects of stress. So let's think about an example for this. So let's let's say you get home after work and it's been a really long, hard day. And you know, you get home, you're tired, you notice you have a bad headache, right? And that's not a typical thing for you, maybe. And you're grumpy, you're not happy with anyone. And, you know, you're just, you have a short temper. And you're like, what is, what's going on, right? And you know what happened at work earlier that day, And at work earlier that day, maybe you got some feedback that was really hard for you to take. So maybe, you know, maybe you had, you had a team meeting and you got some feedback that, you know, your contribution to the project was just not up to par and, you know, you got to step it up. And so this feedback was, was hard to hear. And maybe, you know, that that feedback was accurate, or maybe it was, you know, you felt blindsided, but regardless, it hurt. It was painful feedback to receive. And so, right, as you come home from work that day, you, you're feeling, you're feeling that pain. And you're also feeling some stress because it kicks up worry, right? Like, am I going to be able, am I going to be able to perform, right? Like, am I going to be able to, to get this project where it needs to be. Um, So there's a little bit of worry. There's a little bit of anxiety and stress related to this. And so what often happens is in these moments, right, when you notice some of the symptoms related to stress or you notice like, okay, yeah, like I'm upset about this rather than being able to get curious and acknowledge what happened This is where most people get derailed. And instead of like having some empathy for yourself and like that was hard, that was really painful, that did not feel good and having some compassion for yourself, this is where a lot of people move to numbing. 
right? And so it's like, okay, they'll go to their favorite numbing behaviors, whether that is drinking, whether that's gaming, whether that's TV, whether that's eating, whether that's, you know, over exercise, whatever it might be. Um, But when we think about numbing behaviors, the aim of numbing behaviors is to push the emotion away, right? And what's the emotion that we're trying to push away? The hurt, the worry, the, you know, that was painful to get that feedback today. The worry of like, can I do this? Like, can I get this project where it needs to be? Because those are painful emotions. And a lot of times we don't know what to do with that. And so, What we want to do instead is we want to notice that stress. We want to pay attention to it. And then, of course, rather than trying to avoid, minimize, or ignore, we want to remain non-judgmental about it and simply accept the reactions it produces in you. So when you notice that stress, when you notice that pain, when you notice that worry to be able to say, yeah, it's understandable. That was tough feedback to hear today that hurt. Like it really stung a lot to get that feedback and to acknowledge like, yeah, it's understandable that I'm worried about this project, especially considering the feedback I got. Like it's understandable that I'm concerned about it. So you accept the reactions it produces in you. And this is really good because it allows you to think clearly about the actions you might want to take to offset the effects of stress. So for example, you can you can acknowledge, yeah, this is upsetting. And I can notice like, oh, you know, like I'm feeling, I'm feeling worn out because of that. And I'm I've got a headache and I notice like I'm being grumpy with people and like maybe I just need to take some time and just like settle down. Maybe I just need to have more of a quiet night. Maybe I need to do a little journaling or maybe I just, maybe I just need to like read a good book and take a break from this. When you acknowledge the emotion, right? When you acknowledge that pain, it allows you to think clearly about the actions, right? But you've got to, you've got to allow yourself to think clearly without the judgment, But when you move to the numbing or the avoidance, it prevents you from thinking clearly about how you're going to take action. So this is where most people get derailed because they either panic about their stress or they judge themselves for their stress. And then they can't think clearly. And so they make poor decisions rather than being able to take effective action. So for example... They deny their experience. So they're like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm upset about. Like, it was fine. Like, there's no big deal. So they just kind of reject the fact that they were hurt. They reject the fact that that feedback session was really painful. And so they deny their emotional experience, which prevents them from thinking clearly about the situation. It prevents them from being able to move into problem-solving mode. And it prevents them from even being able to acknowledge their stress because basically they're saying, there's nothing wrong here. Like there's nothing to see here. Everyone keep moving along. 
And so in a very real way, it makes it hard for them to actually meet their needs because they kind of have to pretend everything is fine here. And so it's very, it makes it very difficult for them to meet their needs, right? The other thing that can happen is that they can move to a place of judgment. Like, I'm so lousy, I'm such a failure, I'm never going to get it right. And so they go into shame and judgment and self-recrimination. And then, of course, that just piles on the stress. Because now it's not just, hey... Like I need to, I need to step up my efforts on this project and, you know, they can't think clearly about this one project and what needs to happen because now like they as a person are a failure. And so what has become one specific issue is now a global indictment on them as a person. And so in that way, it completely prevents them from thinking clearly about the situation and what's happened. Their stress level has absolutely exploded, right? Cortisol levels go through the roof. And so to be able to get any sort of containment on that stress is really, really challenging at this point, right? And so in a very real way, Right. When they panic about their stress or they judge themselves for their stress, they can't think clearly. And so it leads to really poor decision making rather than being able to think clearly and take effective action. So this might seem like a small thing, but hopefully you can see with this example that it's really a very big thing because it leads to a domino effect. And it it has very lasting impact for daily functioning. And like I said earlier, these daily stresses have a cumulative effect over time and they have a larger impact than do big stressors because everyone kind of acknowledges big stressors are going to be stressful, right? Like, And it's You know, if you've been in a car accident, everyone can see you've been in a car accident. Everyone can see, hey, you need to take it easy. You need to get rest. But these daily stresses, that's where we get good at numbing. That's when we get good at pretending, right? And sometimes the shame is only happening in our head. And so others might not know what's happening, but the accumulation of stress is still happening. It might just be invisible to other people. So in that way, it can be devastating. Okay, another aspect of a mindful approach to stress is to act with intention in the midst of stress. So with the clear mind that comes from non-judgment, you can connect to what really matters to you in life. So for example, your values, and then choose actions that reflect what you care about. So for example, right, so that example that I just shared with you. So even though you're stressed out by a situation, right, and you're kind of you notice you're like being grumpy or you're really worried about this project at work rather than lashing out at someone because you're angry or because you're worried or because you're upset the non-judgmental stance allows you to slow yourself down 
think clearly and connect to your values, and then act in a way that reflects those values. And this is so, so important. So, you know, presumably you would not lash out at your spouse or your coworker or whomever is nearby, assuming that this is not in keeping with your values. And so in a very real way, mindfulness allows you to be driving your bus, right? Rather than stress driving your bus, because you, you are able to think clearly and retain your ability to choose how you're going to respond rather than being hijacked by your stress, And so even though, you know, it's still an upsetting situation, even though the problem hasn't been solved, you still are able to choose actions that are consistent with your values in this moment to say, you know, like my spouse doesn't deserve my wrath in this moment, you know, and so you can still choose um, actions that are consistent with your values in that moment. And so the scenario really acknowledges that, of course, stress is inherent to life and life is always going to hold challenges, always, 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 but that you don't have to be reactive. And that's what's really true about mindfulness is that we don't have to be reactive, even though life is full of challenges. So you don't have to lose your cool. You can remain calm and you can choose to remain grounded to your values and act in accordance to your values. And so in this way, you are practicing mindfulness in moments of stress and challenge. So the moments may be stressful, but you are not undone by stress. So you remain calm in this moment. And so in that way, you are able to transcend the stress of the moment. So it's pretty cool stuff, pretty cool stuff. And that is the heart of mindfulness right there. That's the heart of mindfulness right there. So the way the authors put this is if you aren't willing to have stress, stress will have you. (laughs) And I really like that. I mean, I think the way they put that is brilliant. So what they mean by that is that it doesn't do you any good to numb or avoid or pretend stress doesn't exist because of course it does. So be deliberate and purposeful about understanding stress in your life. So we want you to be a curious observer about it, but don't be undone by it. So see what it has to teach you in a non-judgmental way. And then you are still able to retain your freedom to choose how you will respond to stress. And so in this way, you're willing to have stress, but you aren't owned by stress. And so as a result, stress doesn't have you. And I think that, you know, in that way, you retain the last of the human freedoms. And that is the freedom to choose your response. Right. And that is it's 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 the freedom to choose your way, the freedom to choose how you will respond, your attitude. And that is the from the work of Viktor Frankl. When everything is taken from you, the last of the human freedoms, freedom to choose your will. 
And, and that's, that's mindfulness right there. So another point that the authors make that I, I really, really appreciate is that stress is not the enemy and it's not something to be banished entirely from our lives. So of course we want to understand it. We don't want to be undone by it, but the, but the mere fact that we have stress in our lives means that there are things that we really care a lot about. And isn't that a great thing? And I really, really love that perspective because I think for so many of us, like when we've experienced stress, we assume something has gone terribly wrong. And that is just not the case. And it doesn't need to be the case. Now, I think sometimes we make a mountain out of a molehill. And so I think it can be really helpful to kind of be curious about that and see if maybe there are times that we're blowing things out of proportion. But the fact that you have stress in your life probably means there are things that are deeply meaningful to you. And so I think this is a really helpful reframe. And, you know, the key, of course, is that we want to keep it in balance so that we're not undone by it. So the authors give just a few guidelines for some brain training, and these are good to keep in mind. So you know, when you're in these moments and, and honestly, every moment, give it your full attention. So don't try to multitask. And I've said this so many times, multitask is not a thing. We think it is, but it's not, we can't do it. Vary what you practice. So the authors give you a lot of exercises. So mix it up. So when we think about mindfulness, there are lots and lots of different ways to practice mindfulness. So you know, there can be a formal meditation practice where you just use, you know, it's, it can be as simple as sitting quietly in a room. It can be deep breathing. It can be using a guided meditation with an app or YouTube or just an audio recording. It can be paying attention to the way you're sitting in a chair. It can be paying attention to the way it feels to sit in your seat at a stoplight. It can be pain. This is actually one that I like to do. Paying attention to the grip of your hands on the steering wheel at a stoplight. That's mindfulness. I mean, everything. Like there's so many opportunities for mindfulness. The way you the way you drink a glass of water is mindfulness. And so you know, mix it up, mix it up. One of the mindfulness practices that I have started recently because they're just, it's just so beautiful on my way to work. I have a really, really short commute, which I am eternally grateful for. Um, but the, the mountains in the morning in winter are just gorgeous. And so as I'm driving to work, I just like to behold the mountains and when, you know, when I'm like waiting at the, at the stoplight. Um, and I just, that's a moment of mindfulness is just like to behold the mountains and just to kind of take them in. And so we just think of these moments of presence where we can, can have a moment in time. And so they recommend that you vary what you, um, practice. And again, like I said, they give you lots of exercises, um, practice produces immediate benefits. So that's really very cool. 
And I've already mentioned this, but practice makes permanent. So this underscores the concept of neuroplasticity. So it's the idea that we can literally rewire our brain through practice. So practice is really what does that rewiring. And so, you know, consistency makes a really big difference. And then, of course, use it or lose it. So this is obviously related to the above point. But if you aren't consistently rewiring those brain pathways, then you'll lose the trail, right? Like you'll you'll lose that rewiring. And so consistency really, really matters. Okay, so then part two focuses on five core aspects of mindfulness. And uh, like I mentioned before, these chapters are really packed with a lot of specific exercises to help you train your brain and rewire those neural pathways toward less stress and more balance. So I'll just go over these briefly. The first one is observe. So notice things that are happening both inside you. So physical sensations, thoughts, feelings, memories, and outside you. So sounds, sights, colors, faces, others' activities. So when you're in observing mode, you hold still mentally and focus attention. So for example, it's like zooming in with a camera lens. So an example of observing would be how I behold the mountains on my drive, right? And it's when I'm at a stoplight, so I'm not like actively driving, but it's, so it's me observing something outside of me. So observing the mountains, Um, The second one is describe your ability to use words to organize and convey what you're aware of either inside or outside you at any moment in time. So being a witness. So this is where you would objectively describe your emotions without judgment. So if we think back to that example of the person who's, you know, coming home from work and they're upset about the feedback they received. So, you know, taking a few minutes and either talking with a person, talking with another person, maybe doing a voice memo or, you know, talking to themselves or jotting down in a journal and describing what are the words that help me understand how I'm feeling right now. So, you know, like I felt blindsided or I feel really hurt or I feel, you know, I feel really hurt because I thought I, I thought I was doing a good job on that project. And I, you know, my boss didn't give me any other feedback or, you know, the feedback my boss gave me a couple of weeks ago, um, helped me to think I was on track, you know, so taking some time and really describing those emotions and trying to connect with that emotion as a witness. So without the judgment, and that's the really important piece, without judgment. Um, and so we're moving away from the, the avoidance or the numbing and moving toward the emotion, but without the judgment. Okay, and then third is detachment. So I want you to think of a Teflon pan, right? Those are the nonstick pans. And imagine your mind is Teflon. So any evaluations, predictions, comparisons, and judgments, they just slide off of your mind. And we want to allow thoughts, feelings, memories, and sensations to simply be present without becoming hooked by mental evaluations, Um, or what you're aware of, such as judgments and evaluations. So we just want to detach from 
you know, some of those judgments and we're just, we're just aware of the thoughts and the feelings, but we're not going to get hooked by judgments or evaluations. And then the fourth is love yourself, right? That might seem very woo woo and who cares? We do. We all need to love ourselves. Ability to show love and kindness to yourself is a powerful tool for creating a state of quiet mind. So of course, self-compassion makes it easier to extend love and compassion to others. And of course, this is not about self-pity. It's actually about respect and it doesn't depend on your performance or accomplishments and it doesn't rely on approval from others and actually our ability to be self-compassionate actually propels us to greater um, performance and achievement so so there's that Um, and then fifth is act mindfully so being aware of what you're doing as you're doing it Um, acting with intention. So behaving in a way that reflects your beliefs and principles. So it's the opposite of operating on autopilot. Um, One of the things that's really helped me with acting mindfully is, um, and so think about activities that can help you with this. So, you know, I'm a power lifter and I have to be fully mindful when I am exercising. Of course, it, it really, um, it really helps to be mindful, but also like powerlifting is so technique driven that it's just, it's super ineffective if I'm not um, fully dialed in and being very mindful. It's also pretty dangerous um, if I'm not completely mindful during those lifts. So that's actually been an activity that has taught me so much about mindfulness and that that full body awareness. And so we think about um, what are some activities that can help you to become more mindful. Um, And so, you know, acting with intention is that last one. Okay. And then let's see, part three is developing the mindful lifestyle. And so, you know, the authors talk about knowing your helpers and hassles. So helpers are the daily activities that stimulate a quiet mind and reduce emotional and physiological arousal and create greater peace of mind. I really like this, knowing your helpers and your hassles. So these can include physical, mental, and social activities, um, and they have lots of exercises in part two that could count as helpers. So these are things that can slow down your autonomic responses that promote more relaxed and flexible behavior. And then, you know, of course, when we think about the accumulation of daily hassles, this has a larger impact on physical and mental health than do the major life events. But when we think about the daily hassles, we seem to think of those as being out of our control because they're just so daily, but they're really not out of our control. So the four main categories of daily hassles include personal concerns. So purpose in life, health, finances, that sort of thing. And then relationship and family concerns, work and school concerns, and then social or environmental concerns. So then determine how much control you have over your daily hassles, like high, medium, or low. Accept what you cannot control and then change what you can. So you could envision the future and start with the present. Think small 
accumulate positives and you could create a daily hassles coping plan. So I want to think about starting where you are and what's even one thing that you could take charge of because that can be really empowering and it can kind of start that snowball. And then managing your energy and not your time. So thinking about, you know, asking yourself the question, does this activity drain my battery or does it charge my battery? And making a list of activities that either drain your battery or charge your battery and really staying away from the activities that drain your energy battery. Um, paying attention to people who <laughs> drain your battery and paying attention to people who add stress to your life. So in a word, drama and avoid avoid them and um, thinking about boundaries and having less time with them. What do you notice when you're with those individuals? What do you notice before you spend time with them? What do you notice after you spend time with them? Um, Pay attention to these signs of stress, um, especially around relationships. And then, of course, streamline and simplify your life to reduce stress. So I think something that can be really helpful, especially if you're kind of a um, a people pleaser or, you know, type A is challenged that I have to, that I should, and that I must. So, you know, will anyone die if you don't do this? You know, if you, if, if you don't, you know, have the perfect spread at dinner this weekend or whatever. So really challenge some of your expectations and then also use extreme criteria um, and, and really be willing to streamline and simplify your life. And then be on the lookout for things that unnecessarily add stress to your life. So... There you go. So this book is a really useful, practical book about mindfulness. And I think, like I said, it's really good in terms of like a nice little, nice little primer on the neuroscience, but then very practical guidebook on mindfulness. So make sure you head on over to my website to check out the show notes with all the great resources for this episode at www.drmelissasmith.com forward slash episode dash 47. Um, One more time, that's www.drmelissasmith.com forward slash episode dash 47. I'm Dr. Melissa Smith. Remember love and work, work and love. That's all there is. Until next time, take good care. 